we're probably going to start a new series next week, probably, I'm still not certain. But for today, we're going to look at a whole book of the Bible, would you believe it? Especially coming from me, who spends, well, at the moment, it's over two years on Romans, isn't it, on Sunday evenings. But we're going to look at a whole book of the Bible this morning, or a letter. Okay, it's a letter that has one chapter. If you'd like to turn to Paul's letter or epistle to Philemon. This epistle of the Apostle Paul, it's very different to the other letters that he wrote in as much he did not declare himself to be an apostle of the Apostle Paul. You you just flick through and have a look at the how he starts his other letters. Invariably, he starts with uh, a labourer and apostle of the uh, sorry, a servant, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he doesn't do that there. He doesn't call himself an apostle. I did a check. You don't see the word apostle mentioned anywhere in this short letter. He simply described himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ in verse 1. It is the shortest of all the Apostle Paul's epistles and it is addressed not so much to a big body of believers like the his epistle to the Romans, the church in Rome. You can I don't know how many people that would have been to. Probably many people though. But this is just a, a letter to not so many people, a small body of believers. Actually, it's primarily to one person, to Philemon. You see that in verse 1 there. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, Timothy's with Paul in Rome, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved. So it's primarily to Philemon, our beloved and fellow labourer, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldiers. So there's another couple of people. And to the church in thy house. The church that meets in the house of Philemon. That's it. But of course, there is a much bigger... Uh, readership, isn't there? There's us here this morning because this letter has been preserved in the Bible. It's there for the benefit of all of us, just the same as any other book or letter in the Bible. We can see from verse 4 onwards that the letter was addressed primarily to Philemon, who was the master of a runaway slave called one Onesimus, we see that verse 4, I thank my God making mention of thee always in my prayers. If you're used to the language used in the King James Version, you'll know that thee is you singular. He's not speaking now to a fear and archippus and the church that meets in Philemon's house. He's addressing Philemon here, but we're having a look at this letter as well and seeing what we can learn from it and how we can benefit from reading this letter. I thank my God making mention of thee, Philemon, always in my prayers. The Apostle Paul's reason reason for writing to Philemon was to entreat him to receive Onesimus back as a newly converted brother in Jesus. He was a slave of Philemon, but he want, Paul was beseeching 
Philemon to receive him back, not only as his servant or slave, but also as a brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you shall see, there is much in this letter to be encouraged with and also to be challenged with. We need both, don't we? We need challenging and we need to be encouraged. First of all, the Apostle Paul, we can consider him from being a persecutor of the church to a spiritual father of a runaway slave. The first time that the writer of this letter, the Apostle Paul, received a mention in the Bible was in Acts chapter 7 that records a sermon that was boldly preached by a man by the name of Stephen. He was a man who was filled with the Holy Ghost. We read that in Acts chapter 7. And taking his Jewish audience back 2,000 years, Stephen preached to them about Abraham. And he took them right up to the present time. So he took them from 2,000 years, the time of Abraham, to the present time. He was speaking to a Jewish audience and he was telling them that God at various times had sent prophets into the world and what did they do with those prophets? They persecuted them and they killed them. They killed the prophets that were sent to them. And then this is what really got the, what really grated uh, and hit a raw nerve of the audience when Stephen said to them, well not only that, but finally, having sent the prophets into the world, God sent his son. And what did you do? You crucified him. So what was the outcome of preaching that sermon? Stephen was martyred. He was stoned to death for telling that audience that they were the ones who slew the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God had sent into the world to be the saviour. So far from making himself popular with that audience, that sermon resulted in his martyrdom. I think that there's a lesson for me in that, by the way, and there's a lesson for all pastors. I think there are too many pastors, if I may say this, who want to be popular with their audience. I don't want to go around making enemies with anyone, but I'm not out to make friends either and to be Mr. Popular. Stephen got himself killed for preaching the truth, for claiming the word of God. And this is what we really need. And it's that kind of preaching that brings about repentance, a genuine repentance, whereby we cry up to heaven, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And and we receive Jesus as our saviour. And how wonderful that is, how beautiful that is, to, to receive Jesus and to know him in a very special way. What I bring, to, what I want to bring to your attention for consideration is that according to Acts, I know we're in Philemon, but I'm, for the time being I keep referring to Acts. According to Acts chapter 7 and verse 58, the people who stoned Stephen to death laid their clothes at a young man's feet and that young man was called Saul. Now imagine the scene now, someone called Saul, young fellow called Saul, standing by, consenting to what was happening. He was consenting to Stephen being stoned to death. And indeed, those who 
who killed Stephen, they'd laid their coats at the feet of Saul. And Acts chapter 9 and verse 1 speaks of the young man Saul as yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. It doesn't sound like a nice man, does he? Going around wasting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, wreaking havoc wherever he went. Saul was a religious Jew, a Pharisee, and clearly as a young man, he had a passionate hatred for Christians, and most of all, a hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. However, by the time this letter to Philemon was written, I don't know how much longer it was, perhaps at least 20 years later, 20 years after, Saul stood there consenting to a Christian preacher being stoned to death, that young man Saul was now an old man by the name of Paul who wrote this letter. What a change, eh? A tremendous change. From being the scourge of the early church, he was now an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, a prisoner of Christ and the writer of this letter. From those early days of consenting to the death of Stephen, here he is in this letter as a prisoner of Christ in Rome, interceding on behalf of what? A runaway slave. Someone, to all intents and purposes, completely insignificant. The slave's name was Onesimus, whom we're told in verse 10, Paul had begotten in his bonds. Have a look at verse 10 there. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. This is what Paul says to Philemon. What does he mean there that he's begotten this slave in his bonds? He's speaking of the slave Onesimus being born again. Being born again. And that Paul was his spiritual father in a sense, as the one who had brought Onesimus to repentance and to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all you Christians in here, you will have people who you may refer to or think of as spiritual fathers or, or indeed spiritual mothers. And not just one person, maybe someone who's very special to you, because even now, all these years later, you can still remember that person who just didn't give up on you, who kept sh- showing you the scriptures, explaining the, the word of God to you, and what was happening in effect? You were being brought to a realisation that God is holy, and that you are a sinner. What this person was in effect doing through the word here, through the word of God, was inducing repentance in you. And maybe that same person or maybe someone else brought you to the Lord Jesus Christ, pointed you in the direction of the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for sinners. To be, I mean, this is a bit of a peculiar testimony. It's not. It's far from usual, but in my own case... To be quite honest, it was an old man from the Jehovah's Witnesses coming round my house who first brought me to a realisation of God, that he is a holy God and not to be trifled with 
and they're pretty good at doing that. But it didn't go beyond that, and I was left dangling over hellfire, if you like. It never went beyond that. And it was only in my local pub that someone said to me, someone who had no interest in Christian things, he said to me, you want to stay away from that lot and get yourself down to a proper church. The person who gave me that advice had no interest in going to church himself, but I took it on board because all these years later, I know that God was working in me in a very special way. And I did precisely what he said. I got myself down to a church. It was very similar to this one, a little Baptist church. And that is where I heard about the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And various people were involved in that. And various people I consider as being instrumental in my salvation. And when it comes to the slave Onesimus, well, Paul featured very significantly in him becoming a Christian. And that's what Paul means there in verse 10. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. There's no boasting there. No boasting at all, but he's just saying there that he has been instrumental, God's instrument, in bringing Onesimus to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you are more used to reading and learning great Christian doctrine in the Apostle Paul's letters, such as we do on Sunday evenings. We've been going through the doctrine of the Apostle Paul with a microscope, haven't we, for a long time now. And uh, I I can't speak for others, but I, I love the doctrine of the Apostle Paul. Christian doctrine. It's something that I... I can feast on and and meditate on and look to God to work it into my soul and my heart and my mind. But here we see the mighty man of God in chains for Christ's sake and interceding for that just one seemingly insignificant slave whom Paul clearly had a tremendous love for. But this is what Christianity is all about. Not so much the love of the Apostle Paul, although there was clearly a love emanating from the Apostle Paul, but it's the love of God. That's the thing here. The love of God as seen in the Apostle Paul, even for insignificant slaves. Of course, he wasn't insignificant at all. Onesimus, the slave, was very special in as much he was dearly loved by God, so much so that the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for him at the cross. So he was the peculiar treasure of Jesus, that slave. And Paul loved him. And we see this time and again in the Gospel books with the Son of God himself reaching out to insignificant individuals, people who are neither lovely or or lovable. For example, you can consider Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He climbed up a tree to see who Jesus was. Now, the very fact that he was a tax collector should tell you that he wouldn't have been a popular man. Who loves a tax collector? Especially when you're collecting taxes for the Romans. 
But anyway, Zacchaeus, uh, Zacchaeus, this little tax collector, he'd heard that someone by the name of Jesus was coming to town and he wanted to see who Jesus was. And let's not go beyond that. He didn't know Jesus as the promised Messiah or anything else. He was curious. So he clambered up a tree and he probably wasn't the only one up the tree. There would probably have been kids who had climbed up the trees as well to have a look who this Jesus is. But what happened with Zacchaeus? Jesus called him by name and abode in his house. Can you imagine that? Zacchaeus would never have imagined that, that he'd be called down. He probably nearly fell down, fell off the tree when Jesus looked up and called him. He came down, Jesus abode in his house and in Mark chapter 19 and verse 9, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, this day is salvation come to this house. These would have been the most special words that Zacchaeus had ever heard in his life. From Jesus, no less, that salvation had come to his house. Wow, that's wonderful. Salvation from sins, and that means everlasting life. That means being reconciled to a holy and sin-hating God. That means having a heavenly inheritance. That means having a hope that reaches beyond the grave and reaches up to heaven where Jesus is. That's salvation. It's pretty good, isn't it? I can't think of anything better. And we can consider the demoniac, in other words, someone who was possessed by many evil spirits. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus crossed over a stormy sea. It was so stormy that even his disciples, who were by and large fishermen, they thought that they were going to drown. That's how bad it was. I've heard stories about the crossing from uh, Liverpool, how bad that was the other, last week. It would, I, I'm guessing that the journey to where the demoniac was was even worse if, it, if um, fishermen on board were worried for their lives. And when Jesus arrived in the country of the Gadarenes on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, he was met by that demon-possessed man, and it wasn't a coincidence, we can, we can be certain that Jesus made that journey for that man. He went on a mission to meet with one, de- well actually two, demon-possessed people. No coincidences there. And the demon-possessed man lived in tombs, he'd often been bound in chains, but he'd broken loose from those chains, And he cried out and he even self-harmed. He cut himself with stones. He was a right mess, in other words. By the end of his encounter with Jesus, that man was telling others what great things Jesus had done for him. And Now, this story is in two of the Gospel books. In one of them, he goes around telling people what great things Jesus has done for him. And in in the other account, he goes around telling people what great things God has done for him. Well, which is it? It's both, isn't it? Because Jesus is God. And and we need to realise that, that the one who laid down his life on a cross for people like you and me is the incarnate Son of God. Amazing truths. Too good to miss. Too good to put aside. You can't do that. 
Jesus endured an infinitely greater storm than the one on the Sea of Galilee in order to bring deliverance to insignificant individuals like Saul of Tarsus, that that man who went around persecuting the church, or Onesimus the slave, or Zacchaeus the tax collector, or the demoniac, or people like you and me. Even today, Jesus is still reaching insignificant, unloving and unlovable sinners with a divine love that is best seen and best understood when you look at that cross, that wooden cross that the Lord Jesus Christ was nailed to and lifted up to die as he suffered and bled and died for those who would trust in him. That, if, if you want the, the best example of love ever, you just look at the cross. I can't imagine there is anything to even begin to compete with that. Secondly, Paul appealed not to his apostolic authority, but to love. Well, I'm back in Philemon here, looking at verses 8 and 9 where he says to Philemon, Paul says to Philemon, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, he's now an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The first thing that Paul made mention of concerning the one who would receive this letter, Philemon, was Philemon's love and his faith. Paul raises that in, in those verses, the, the faith and the love of the recipient of this letter, Philemon. It's a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a Christian love. The two are inseparable. Without the love, you would have to question the faith. We're not here to judge anybody. I certainly am not here to judge anybody. But you really would have to um, question someone who professes faith in Jesus but shows no love to others, especially the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not consistent. At other times we've considered the inseparability of faith and suffering for Christ's sake. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, he said that it's given unto you not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his sake. And when you think about it, a Christian with no faith, that's a complete nonsense. It doesn't make sense at all. But also, a Christian who doesn't suffer at this sometime, for Christ's sake, whether it's suffering some... um, Abuse, verbal abuse, maybe being passed by for promotion or whatever. If they, if you never suffer for Christ's sake, then you're doing a really good job of hiding your light under the bushel and you're doing a really good job of hiding your Christianity from this world. Even though you are actually supposed to be a light in the world and salt of the earth. But also what we're looking at today is not so much the suffering for Christ's sake, but love. 
You can't separate that from faith. Faith ought to be seen in love and compassion for brothers and sisters in Christ. We spent several weeks looking at that on Sunday evenings in Romans chapter, uh, what was it now, 13 and 14? 12, 13 and 14, three chapters about love for the brethren, how it's seen in practical ways. This is a familiar theme in the New Testament. If you are truly saved, whatever acts of compassion you do for the least of the brethren, you do for Christ. Not that you go around thinking about it all of the time, but this is what you do as a new creature in Christ. You show compassion to brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of the brethren, you do for me. It's faith in action. It's as simple as that. The Apostle Paul could so easily have pulled apostolic rank when he appealed to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, but he didn't. He appealed to something infinitely greater, love. Love is far more compelling than anything else. It was an appeal that would inevitably have struck a chord with Philemon, whose very life was a testimony of the love of God that had been poured out in his heart by the Holy Spirit. And that's you, dear Christian. The love of God poured out, shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 5. In a sense, any one of you in here who professes faith in Jesus can do precisely what the great Apostle Paul did. When you are looking after the interests of others, you can appeal to the higher level, the highest level, and that highest level is love. But such appeals will probably only be heard and acted upon if the person you are appealing to has the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and that the person you are appealing to has the love of God as well. And also, such an appeal is likely to fall on deaf ears if the person appealing to someone and appealing to the highest authority of love doesn't actually show any love in his life. He just shows himself to be uh, a hypocrite and a contradiction. So really, when, you need, when you're appealing to that highest level love, that love needs to be seen in your life. And you can be sure that the one who made that appeal to the highest level love The Apostle Paul, instead of pulling apostolic rank on Philemon, he oozed love. Not his own love, but the love of God. He was love and compassion personified. Again, pointing to who? His Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is love. Some of that ought to be seen in us as Christians. And I don't know if I'm challenging anyone in here. I certainly challenge myself. And this is uh, an ongoing prayer of mine that there more might be more of that fruit of love in my life. Not just a nice gooey Christian smile. Much more than that. That love would be a verb and it would be a doing word. Something that would be seen in my life for the glory of God and for the benefit of, the, of others. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And that I would do what I do joyfully as well. Not begrudgingly. 
Paul was no hypocrite. He appealed to love because love was seen in his life. Even when he was in prison, his selfless concern and love for others was clearly evident. Let's not forget, he was a prisoner in Rome at the time and he's appealing to Philemon on behalf of a slave, a runaway slave who he'd begotten in his bonds. What about you? Is there anything about your practical Christian life that would make people listen when you appeal to them in love? There really ought to be when you consider that God is love and that God has shed his love abroad in the hearts of all true Christians by the Holy Ghost who is given to them, given to you, dear Christian, the Holy Spirit who indwells you. Thirdly, Paul offered to cover any debt which might be owed by Onesimus to Philemon. Look at verse, we won't read the whole thing again, but uh, look at verse 18. If he have wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. We can speculate about the circumstances which took a runaway slave on a long journey from Colossae to the Apostle Paul in Rome. I don't know how long it is. I, I was trying to find out earlier on today, actually. It was a long journey. And, you know, it's not as if the runaway slave got on an intercity train, or, well, not intercity, it would have been more than that. And he, it's not as if he went to the nearest airport. A long journey. And you think he's run away from his master, from Philemon. How did he have the funds? How did he have the means to get to Rome, to Paul? There's a lot of how did he do this? And the answer is we're, we're not told. We don't know. And it, the idea might be entertained that he stole money from his master, that Onesimus, before he ran off to Rome, he stole some money from his master, from Philemon, in order to finance that journey to Rome. And now we have in verse 18, Paul saying, if he have wronged thee, or oweth thee ought, put that on mine account. Ah, there you have it. So Onesimus, he's stolen the money and Paul is offering to pay back that which has been stolen. You might think that, and I, I would say you would be wrong to think that. Because let's put this in perspective here. The slave has gone to Paul. No coincidences again. God has taken him on that journey all the way to Rome. He didn't just go there. He didn't just bump into Paul in Rome. Paul, who was in bonds under house arrest, Onesimus, he was determined to go to the Apostle Paul and I would say that the Holy Spirit working in that man gave him that determination to go to Paul. Just like you, Christians in here, when you became Christians, it's only when you look back on it perhaps you realise, wow, God was really moving me then. Why did I do this? Why did I do that? In my case, why did I sit on a... I was recovering, I had a hangover, recovering from the night before, sitting on a wall across the road from that Baptist chapel that I told you about earlier, sitting on a wall, watching people go in there. My heart was pounding and I thought, I need to get in that place. I'd only gone out to buy some food from the shop. 
And uh, that was the beginning of me finding out about Jesus and the love of God. I didn't realise any of that stuff at the time. But you think now, Onesimus, he went on that long journey to Rome. God was leading him in that direction to the Apostle Paul. And back to verse 18, if he have wronged thee, or oh, if thee ought, put that on mine account. Listen, Onesimus, he was born again when he was with Paul, begotten in, uh, in begotten again when he was with Paul, became a new creature in Christ. That of necessity involves repentance for sin. There are a lot of people in the world, a lot of people going to churches who call themselves Christians, but they've never actually been to the cross of Christ. They've never repented of their sins. And in fact, they tell there are churches that have a policy not to preach repentance, not to hurt people with their, by calling out their sins. Jesus, when he came into the world, what's the first thing we read about him when he started his ministry? The very first thing you read about Jesus, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is nigh. And it was a message of repentance. What is it that the apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost? Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's a message of repentance and faith in Jesus. So you can assume that the Apostle Paul knew that and he didn't omit to um, induce repentance in Philemon. He didn't just give him all the all the all the nice things and and not hit him with the fact that God is holy and that we need to that we're standing on holy ground before God and that Jesus he died on the cross for bad people not for good people I'm one of those bad people that Jesus died for on a cross. I was, and I still am at times, to my utter shame. But I thank God through Jesus Christ, who loved me and who gave himself for me. So, what am I getting at here, before I get lost in my thoughts? Back to verse 18 again. If he have wronged me. Now, you can... I, I can't say this 100%, but 99.9%, you can be sure that if Onesimus had stolen from his master in order to get to Rome, he would have confessed that. I'm not saying he would have had to confess everything to the Apostle Paul. When I became a Christian, I didn't confess all my sins. I can't remember them all. And there's no need to. The important thing is to be truly sorry, for have a godly sorrow and a change of mind about sin, and to abhor sin. You don't have to run through the whole lot. How can you? And the more you, the longer you've been a Christian, the more you realise that your life is one continuous sin anyway. It's not just a sin in the morning, a couple of sins in the afternoon, maybe a sin in the evening. 
It's sin. And the important thing is repentance for that sin. But still I would say that if Onesimus, the slave, had stolen from his master and he arrives at the Apostle Paul, that would have come up in conversation. And Paul would not be saying in verse 18, if he had wronged thee. That doesn't make sense at all. So let's look at verse 18. If he have wronged thee, or oh if thee ought, put that on mine account. So what what I would say that Paul was saying there is something along the lines of if his absence, the, the absence of Onesimus, has in some way cost you financially, he's being away from you, if that's if that's cost you financially, then Paul is saying, I will pay his debt for him. Whatever you've lost, I will make good on that. A person who has become a Christian has been raised up from spiritual death to spiritual life. This would have been Onesimus. He is a new creature or a new creation in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. As a child of God, a born-again Christian is being moulded and shaped and conformed to the image of Christ and that's happening continually. And just when you think, well, I'm getting more, I'm really getting Christ-like now, what happens? You open your, me, Glenn, I open my big mouth and say something that I immediately regret. And he realised, oh well, there's still a lot more work to be done here. And that work is never really finished until you go to be with Jesus where he is. But nevertheless, there is that ongoing progressive work of sanctification in all of God's people. In practical terms, what that must surely mean is having a love for the things that Jesus loves and a hatred for the things that Jesus hates, more and more so. And you probably only realise that if you can think back. Don't don't spend too much time thinking back, because you give yourself nightmares. But think back to how you used to be, the things you used to love, that you now hate, the things that you used to hate, God in particular, and now that you now love. Different. New creature in Christ. Already we've seen an ever-growing Christ-likeness in the Apostle Paul, who before his conversion persecuted to death, such was his hatred for Jesus. By the grace of God, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul did not even need to pull rank when writing to Philemon. He simply exuded the love of God, the love of God, both in his word and in his deeds. That love was seen in his willingness to make good on anything that that converted slave might just owe his master through his absence. But even then, that would be more than made up because as Paul explains in this letter, he is far more profitable to you now than he ever was before. Not just as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. That gesture of Paul bore all the hallmarks of his God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who didn't just offer to make good on anything that we might owe, 
if we're Christians. But he did precisely that, didn't he? He really did pay the debt of sin for all who are trusting in him. A debt that none of us could pay ourselves. A debt that weighed so heavy upon us. And maybe it weighs heavy upon you, whoever you are, if you have not yet come to Jesus as a repentant sinner. Jesus paid the debt in full for all who trust in him. And he took that debt upon himself at the cross. In a sense, if you are a Christian, you are like the slave Onesimus. Jesus has redeemed you, not with silver or gold, but with something infinitely greater. And he has redeemed you with his own blood at the cross. His own precious blood, the blood of God, which was poured out of the cross, at the cross, when he saved you from your sin. It was a debt that you could never, ever repay in eternity. And now all who were, who were once unprofitable slaves to sin and Satan are able to sing, as we will do when I've finished in a minute, you're able to sing redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Amen. Okay, so open your hymn books, please. Our last hymn is 436. And we're seeing what I've just been saying there. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Thank you. 